I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Je suis venu vous parler d'Europe. Das ist ein guter Tag für Deutschland und es ist ein guter Tag für Europa. Brexit means Brexit. Du lytter til parlamentet, Altingets podcast om Europa. Sponsoreret af 3F. svenska som ett mumintroll. Det är mitt modersmål. <laughs> ja, sådan siger han. Ham her, Alex Stup eller Kai Jørgen Alexander Stup, som hans fulde navn egentlig lyder. Han er ikke nogen mumitroll. Nej, han er en mand, der prøver at blive kandidat for Europas største politiske familie til det vigtigste job i EU. Ham har jeg talt med. Vi blev ret hurtigt enige om ikke at tale mumisvensk, men engelsk, selvom han jo sådan set også taler både tysk og fransk, og så selvfølgelig sit rigtige modersmål, finsk. Jeg synes, du skal møde en vaskeægte spidsenkandidat. Eller i hvert fald en, der prøver på at blive det. For Alexander Stub går efter at blive de europæiske konservatives bud på den person, der skal overtage jobbet som formand for EU-kommissionen efter Jean-Claude Juncker næste år. Stup siger selv, at han vil være håbets kandidat. You know, we've created a good society, not only in the Nordic countries, but elsewhere in Europe as well. And I, I, I don't want to throw that away. There, there are a lot of illiberal forces in Europe right now that, you know, they're inciting hate speech and fear and 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 the rest of it. And I, I, I want to be a little bit the candidate of hope, if you will. Alexander Stup er tidligere statsminister og forresten også tidligere udenrigsminister og finansminister i Finland. Og så er han noget af en sportsfanatiker og en mand, der prøver at være europæisk leder på en ny måde. I'm a dad. Uh, I'm a husband. Uh, I'm a uh, middle-aged man who likes to wear lycra in sports and tries to pretend to be the next generation. <laughs> ja, ham her, Alexander, han løber maraton, han dyrker triathlon, han er en rigtig Ironman, og hans far var direktør for Finlands Nationale Ishockeyforbund. Jeg siger det bare. Velkommen til denne uges europæiske podcast fra Altinget. Mit navn er Thomas Lauritsen, og i den her udsendelse fokuserer jeg på en mand og et interview. Parlamentet er sponsoreret af 3F fordi Danmark fortjener færre journalistik om EU. Marathonmanden Alexander Stub kan få god brug for at løbe stærkt, hvis han skal have en chance. I næste uge, helt præcis torsdag den 8. november, der mylder topfolk fra konservative partier over hele Europa til Helsinki. Der skal de vælge deres spidsenkandidat. Valget står mellem Stub og tyskeren Manfred Weber, som er formand for Europaparlamentets konservative gruppe. Den hedder EPP. Det bliver startskud til et kapløb mellem Europas politiske partier. Et res mod topposterne i EU's institutioner, som vi jo allerede har talt en del om her i podcasten. 
Sidste gang, der var vagtskifte i toppen af EU, det var jo i 2014, og der lykkedes det faktisk Europaparlamentet at vende det hele sådan lidt. På hovedet, det gjorde de ved at sige, at de europæiske politiske partier skulle opstille kandidater til jobbet som kommissionsformand, samtidig med Europaparlamentsvalget. Og den politiske familie, der så fik flest stemmer, ja, deres kandidat skulle så blive chef for kommissionen. Det er det, der bliver kaldt for spitsenkandidatprocessen. Det var på den måde, at Jean-Claude Juncker fik jobbet. Mange af de nationale stats- og regeringsledere synes dengang, at de blev tvunget af begivenhederne til at gøre det på den måde. Så det er ikke sikkert, at det kommer til at foregå helt på samme måde næste år. Men nu er de fleste europæiske partiorganisationer gået i gang med spitsenshowet alligevel. Selvom næste uges konservative kongres foregår i Alexander Stubbs egen hovedstad, så bliver det altså op ad bakke for ham at blive valgt. For Manfred Weber er jo som sagt tysker. Han er fra Angela Merkels bayerske søsterparti CSU, og han er systemets mand. Så det er langt fra sikkert, at Alexander Stubb bliver manden, der skal lede EU videre efter Brexit. Men han burde egentlig være en stærk kandidat. Stubb lægger vægt på værdier, han vil gøre op med nationalismen, og han sætter i det hele taget ord på mange af de udfordringer, det europæiske demokrati står over for lige nu. Hør selv, hvad han har at sige. Vi starter som sagt med en lille smule mumisvensk. Jag talar svenska som ett mumintroll. Det är mitt modersmål. <laughs> Let's do it in English. Uh, first, three quick real candidate questions. What kind of man are you? Uh, I'm a dad. Uh, I'm a husband. Uh, I'm a uh, middle-aged man who likes to wear lycra in sports and tries to pretend to be the next generation. <laughs> Just a normal kind of guy. <laughs> You're a real sports nut. Yeah, yeah. typical Scandinavian male. Yeah. What kind of politician are you? Probably value-based. I think there are two kinds. There are those people who are in it for improving the world and making the world a better place, and then there are those who are in it for the power kicks. I'm a bit, I guess, blue-eyed, sometimes a little bit naive, optimistic, but I, I believe in value-driven politics. Why do you want to be uh, commission president? Values. Uh, I think uh, our values, fundamental rights, human rights, uh, democracy, rule of law, tolerance, equality are under attack. They're under attack from outside the EU, from inside the EU, from inside my party. And I want to stand at the barricades and defend these values because if we throw them away, we've got nothing left. We'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, you mentioned, Alex, uh, being sort of a fresh face or a new generation here. I have to touch on that because you're 50 like me. Yeah. Are we really the new generation? Well, yes and no. If you compare to what we've had in the European Union previously, it's pretty much led by grey old men. Uh, I think we are an improvement to that. So we're grey middle-aged men. We're not that uh, grey. No, not that grey. <laughs> we're not too bad. Uh, I mean, I guess generation is between your ears as well. It's in your head. How you act, how you react, what you do in 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 life, and I, you know, want to step the EU to the next level and and bring in the next generation. Why is it an important moment in history for the EU now? Uh, I think we've had three ideologies in the past century in Europe. Fascism was killed in 1945. Uh, communism was killed in 1989. 
Uh, and this is important because liberal democracy should not begin a slow death in the year of 2016 with uh, Donald Trump and, and, and Brexit. So in that sense, I think we are, we're living uh, at an important age. I'm myself a child of the 1989 revolution. That's when I started studying. That's when I got into international relations, political science. And, and I've lived a life where I've been able to uh, believe and work with liberal democracy, social market economy and globalization. And I, I, don't, I don't want that to go away. You talk a lot about values uh, in Europe. Uh, which values are they exactly? Well, if you're legalistic about it, you find them in Article 2. There are two sets of them, really. Uh, but if you're more, I guess, political and emotional, uh, for me it's about human dignity in many ways, who we are as human beings. It's about freedom. It's about tolerance. It's about equality. Um, it's about liberal democracy. Um, and at the end of the day, it's about rule of law and, and you know, protecting minorities. And, and I think... You know, we've created a good society, not only in the Nordic countries, but elsewhere in Europe as well. And I, I, I don't want to throw that away. There, there are a lot of illiberal forces in Europe right now that, you know, they're inciting hate speech and fear and, and, and the rest of it. And I, I want to be a little bit the candidate of hope, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, how important are those values for the European Union? Extremely important. Without them, we have absolutely nothing. Uh, and especially when we fe feel a little bit, you know, insecure and, and we're wondering, you know, what's going on with our currency, the euro, or what's going on with migration, and, you know, what's going on with the future of work and technology. We have to find an anchor to latch on to, sort of to grab on to. And for me, that anchor is, is, is values uh, and and. You know, if, if we throw them away, I'd at least feel very uncomfortable. So the, the values are important. It's everything that we have. It's what binds Europe together. Yeah, what binds you and I together. I'll take it one step further. I think, you know, as we're moving with the technological revolution and, and, and more and more things will be done by artificial intelligence and robot, there's robots, there's one thing that's left for us, and that's empathy, the way in which you and I treat each other. And, and if we lose that sort of human dignity and touch, I think we lose a lot. You say that those values are in a way uh, maybe <clears throat> under threat at the moment, both uh, from without and from within in the European Union. Could you maybe elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, sure. If you take it from the outside, you know, I'm a strong transatlanticist. I've studied in the States. I've lived there for over five years. And I've always believed, you know, in the U.S. way of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And now I'm looking at, uh, you know, the U.S. president and the way in which he acts, reacts and behaves. And I just don't share his values, if he has any. He's very agnostic in many ways. He's very transactionalist. For him, it's all about deals and, and winning and losing. And I don't like that way of, of life as much as I like uh, the United States. So that's one quarter from where it's under attack, whether it's multilateralism or international relations. China is another one. You know, the Chinese model is Confucian. It, it basically means that the way in which you treat data uh, is completely different from the way in which we treat data. For us, it's about protecting the individual. For them, it's about acquiring information of the individual. And then, of course, Russia, which basically is an illiberal country. You know, it re rejects uh, freedom. It rejects uh, liberal democracy. And, and I kind of have a feeling that our way of life, I, I, from our perspective, is, is better. So all of those are attacks from the outside. Then on the inside, you know, we have the classic examples of, of Poland, Uh, the Law and Justice Party, uh, you know, we have Italy, Salvini, we have um, Orban and Hungary, Fidesz Party, 
um, you know, we have um, journalist murders in Malta, in 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 Slovakia. We have issues in in Romania. So, you know, there are some countries that are basically acting in illiberal ways against the basic values of the EU. So that's what I mean when I say they're under threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've used the term illiberal a couple of times now. It's being used more and more. Could we maybe just try and spell it out, what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's something actually which has been, I'd say, coined by by, by Viktor Orban yes. and the Finnish party. And, mm. and uh, you know, it's 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 being uh, anti-democratic to a certain extent. Uh, you know, it can be anti-rule of law, anti-free speech, anti-free uh, freedom of assembly. Um, anti-academic uh, freedom. This to me is illiberal. So illiberal is, is sort of the same family as intolerance. And I have very little tolerance for intolerance. <laughs> What can you do about it if you become commission president? Two things. You can speak about it and talk about the values because not only are there practical, but they're also a feeling, uh, an emotional thing. So, you know, you need to say that You know, we have these values and stick to them. A little bit like, you know, I don't know, Barack Obama did perhaps uh, in his uh, presidency. And the other one is then to be concrete when it comes to laws, rules and regulations. Uh, if a member state uh, basically acts against those values, you need to start procedures, as we have done already mm-hmm. with Poland and with Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Viktor Orban, uh, whose party, Fidesz, of course, is part of the EPP political family. Uh, that you are running to become a candidate for. Um, can you accept somebody like Orban in that in your political family? I think you need a procedure to deal with it. Uh, you know, obviously I don't agree with him on a lot of things. At mm. the same time, we're a very broad political family, so there's you know tolerance for different types of views. But as I said, I have very little tolerance for... for But he's proud views. of being illiberal. Yeah, it's true. And that's mm. why I think we need a procedure. Um, first, we need the dialogue, and that has started already in Brussels uh, in the EPP summit uh, in October. Uh, then secondly, we need uh, a new set of values and we will write those down and, and approve them uh, in the Helsinki Congress on the 8th of November. Uh, and then obviously if uh, Orban doesn't abide by uh, those values, then the issue is very binary. You either are with us or you're not. Uh, so he can go out if he doesn't uh, like our values. Mm. Because of course... You're right, the the European political families contain many different parties, the others do as well. Um, but at some point, uh, I guess you have to draw a line. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, and that's why that's why we exist, you know, we're a rules-based system. And, mm. and, and uh, the legal aspect is one, the so-called Article 7 procedure mm-hmm. that uh, has been or is in the process of being started with with Hungary and and, uh, and that's how we deal with each other and then we try to change behavior uh, when the red line has been crossed. Mm. Uh, are there any parties <clears throat> that you would say do not belong uh, in your political family, national conservative parties like Dansk Folkeparti in Denmark, for instance? Well, I don't take issue with particular parties. You know, the parties have to abide and stand uh, with the rules and regulations uh, and if they don't do that, Uh, you know, then then they're out. If they do, they're in. Uh, and it's not my job to decide uh, which of the 51 sister parties are in or out. But I can say that, for instance, with peace, law and justice in 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 Poland or or um, you know Lega Nord or you know Salvini uh, in Italy, I would not accept them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Danish Conservative Party have won 
uh, MEP at the moment. So that's the only Dane uh, mm. in the EPP group, which is the biggest one in the parliament. Yeah. And a good one at that. And, yes, and it probably will be the biggest group again after the, the elections next year. Um, if that the Conservatives were not to get an MEP re-elected, because ben Benson is not presenting himself mm. again next time, Uh, would that be a loss for a country to not have anybody in the EPP group? Of course. You know, it's the biggest political force in the European Parliament. It's the biggest political party in Europe. So that would be uh, a loss, definitely. Uh, and hopefully that won't happen. Mm -hmm. Let's turn <clears throat> now to the uh, process you're uh, trying to become a part of, the, the so-called Spitzenkandidat process. You're hoping to be the candidate of the EPP. Um, why do you think this uh, process, this way of doing it, uh, is the right way? Well, it's part of democracy. A little bit like you have primaries uh, in the United States before the presidential election. You get a democratic legitimacy for the election. I mean, it's obviously an imperfect system. You know, European democracy is imperfect by definition. But the idea is to basically have public discourse, discussion uh, and exposure to European candidates that want to become the Commission president. And for me, it's got two phases. One are the European elections. So I think they're very important. Uh, and two is that whoever wants to become the next president of the European Commission, he will also run uh, for the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. um, but is it really that democratic? I mean, there are critics uh, who say that, for instance, in 2014, where it was tried for the first time, uh, that most people in Europe didn't even discover that it was going on. Well, turn it the other way around. Previously, commission presidents were elected by the European Council, so the heads and state uh, of mm -hmm. government behind closed doors. Uh, I think this was an improvement. Democracy advances step by step. It's not going to be perfect, but it's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. For instance, the Danish commissioner, uh, Mrs. Vestager, uh, has called it uh, a fiction recently mm. because you're telling people that they can vote for the next commission president, but they mm. can't really because they're, they're voting for other politicians. Well, I hope she's not in a fictive commission, right? <laughs> in that case, because this is the way uh, her boss, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, was yes. was was elected. Um, I mean, no, I don't think it's, it's fiction. Uh, basically, what can be done by the lead candidate of whichever party it is, he or she can campaign in all the 27 uh, member states uh, after Brexit, and I think should do so as well. Mm. Of course, they can't vote for that person, and that's quite clear. But if that person runs in the European elections, then he or she will have been coming from one constituency. If I win, I will be coming in from the constituency of Finland. Yes, Denmark did not uh, um, vote for that. But, you know, if you're in Herning, you are in certain constituency. And if mm. you're in Copenhagen, you're in another. So, you know, if you're from Copenhagen, you can't vote for the candidates from Herning. It's as simple as that. Mm. It also seems that many of the heads of state and government uh, are not that crazy about this process. You, you've been uh, leader of a government yourself. Why do you think they're critical? Well, it's quite clear because they lose a little bit of power and they realize yeah. that. Uh, you know, the European Council nominates the candidate, but they're fully aware that it's going to be very difficult for them to nominate the person who has not been a lead candidate or won in the European Parliament elections because that person won't be then elected by the Parliament. So they lose a little bit of power and that's why some of them are not too enthusiastic about it. And of course, the other issue is that, you know, if you are uh, a sitting prime minister, you're not going to be able to run for commission president. Uh, you know, I 
mm-hmm. wasn't able to do that or Helle Torning-Schmidt wasn't able to do it the last time around because then it would have been seen as, uh, you know, disloyal to your own voters at home. Mm-hmm. But isn't that a problem? Yeah, to a certain extent it is. Uh, but then it's an opportunity for some of us like me. You know, I uh, left uh, day-to-day politics two years ago and when the opportunity knocked on the door to run in this race, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to do so. And, and, and obviously... I hopefully have all the necessary qualities and background to do it. Yes. Do you think it's time for a Nordic Commission president? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, in many ways, I, I'm quite saddened that uh, the Commission president has never been or come from a Nordic country, a Baltic state, Central or, or Eastern Europe. Of course, then, you know, you have the counter-argument from Germany saying, oh, we haven't had a commission president since Walter Hallstein. That's fine. But, I mean, you know, look at the positions of Germans at this mm. moment. European Stability Mechanism, Klaus Regling, mm. um, the uh, European Investment Bank, Werner Hoyer, uh, the uh, Court of Auditors, Lene, mm. uh, and then obviously Secretary General of the Commission is Martin Selmayr, Secretary General of, the, of uh, the External Action Service is Helga Schmidt, and the Secretary General of the European Parliament is, is Klaus Welle. So, you know, mm. uh, there are quite a few Germans in places. It would be nice to have a Nordic. Yeah. Do you think you, you have a real chance? Because there's another uh, candidate for the EPP, uh, Mr. Weber, yeah. who is a German mm-hmm. and who apparently has uh, some sort of support from uh, Chancellor Merkel and other leaders. Mm-hmm. Well, given that I'm on Danish radio, I have to use a Danish example. For me, this is a little bit like you know, Finland playing Germany in football, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish it was ice hockey. Uh, and I can say that Finland has now won four matches in a row in the European League and uh, Germany hasn't done so well. But perhaps this is 1992 all over again. And I remember being in Hofbräu House uh, cheering Denmark on when they won the European Championships uh, uh, in football uh, against Germany. So We all remember that We day. all remember that. We're still drinking to it. Some, some, <laughs> yeah. some never stop drinking in Denmark, right? They're still, <laughs> exactly. you know, yeah, yeah. still going down with the Carlsberg on it. But, um, I mean, the bottom line is that, that, you know, obviously it's an uphill battle. There's no question about it. You know, Manfred is the establishment candidate. <laughs> mm-hmm. He has a lot of public support from people who also want to support the chancellor. And I, I sort of understand them, you know. We, we don't want to leave Angela Merkel alone in this difficult political situation. But, hey, it's a secret ballot and uh, we got... Uh, a little bit of campaigning to do, and we'll see how it goes in Helsinki. I'm pretty relaxed about it. I'm, I'm quite happy to be in the race. I'm excited about the possibility to talk about Europe and about values, and whether a win or lose is, is, is I'm not saying irrelevant, but it's not the main point here. Tak til Alexander Stup, Finlands tidligere statsminister, som altså i næste uge gør et forsøg på at blive de europæiske konservatives kandidat til jobbet som formand for EU-kommissionen, når det bliver ledigt næste år. Nu om dage sidder Stup i ledelsen af den europæiske investeringsbank EIB, så det er ikke fordi han sådan står og mangler et job. Vi får se, om den finske kandidat kan slå den tyske i opløbet, ligesom Danmark mod al forventning sejrede over Tyskland på fodboldbanen dengang i 1992. Det bliver ikke nemt for Alexander Stup. Hans rival Manfred Weber har på forhånd fået opbakning fra alle de konservative regeringsledere i EU, for eksempel fra kansler Merkel. Men hun sidder jo altså også i regering med Webers parti, CSU, hjemme i Tyskland. Selv Viktor Orbán fra Ungarn har sagt, at han støtter Weber. Det er måske ikke så mærkeligt, når man hører, hvor kritisk Alexander Stubb er over for den ungarske regering.
Men det er nu lidt påfaldende, at ingen af de andre konservative ledere støtter Stup, der jo har masser af visioner og erfaring som politisk topleder. Manfred Weber er meget mere fagløs, og han har aldrig været regeringsleder eller bare minister for den sags skyld. Måske er Alexander Stup simpelthen for ambitiøs en kandidat. Ach ja, sådan fungerer det nemlig også nogle gange i toppen af europæisk politik. Men af en eller anden grund, så tror jeg alligevel ikke, at det her bliver det sidste, vi kommer til at høre fra den finske maratonløber. Uanset hvad der så sker med spitsenkapløbet. Det var, hvad jeg havde til dig i den her uge. Tak fordi du lyttede med. Du kan læse mere om spitsenkandidat og om de europæiske konservatives vigtige partikongres på altinget.dk i de kommende dage. Min kollega Christina Hovlind tager nemlig til Helsinki for at dække kongressen for os i næste uge. I den kommende uge er jeg selvfølgelig også tilbage med den sædvanlige podcast sammen med Altingets EU-redaktør Rikke Albregsen. Vores podcast er sponsoreret af Fagligt Fællesforbund 3F, men altinget har det fulde ansvar for programmets indhold. Ansvarshavende redaktør er Jakob Nielsen, producer er Henrik Axel Bugler, og mit navn er Thomas Lauritsen. Tak for i dag. Lyt med igen i næste uge her i parlamentet, hvor altinget taler om Europa. Parlamentet er sponsoreret af 3F, fordi Danmark fortjener færre journalistik om EU.